If you will turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you recall, at the beginning of the calendar year, we, uh, we quit walking through 1 Corinthians and we ended at the end of chapter 14. Uh, to begin another series, and we finished that last week, and we're going to pick up and finish out 1 Corinthians beginning this morning with chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. And wouldn't you know it, this is about the resurrection. We praise God in His providence, and I promise we didn't plan that. (laughs) So this morning I'll be preaching a sermon entitled Raised with Christ, and really this is part one. We'll be talking about resurrection for several weeks. Our key words for our worshipers in training are resurrection, appeared, and grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, we will get to the text in just a moment. I'm wondering if any of you saw the front page of the Savannah Morning News in, on January 29th of this year. I'll remind you. Of what it said, the headline was Pooler Police Search for Stolen Bunny. So the Pooler Police are on a bunny hunt. Happy was the name of a stuffed bunny that showed up at the gazebo of US 80 in Pooler last April, and it disappeared as mysteriously as it came, is what the paper says. They continue and write, The bunny was dressed up for various holidays and became the unofficial mascot of the Pooler Garden Club. According to police, the investigation is ongoing. We take it seriously because it is a theft. A detective has canvassed local businesses to find out if anyone saw the bunny being taken or caught it on their security camera. So far, no bunny. There's not that much physical evidence in a theft case like that, the investigator said, but he's been out working the investigation every day since the missing rabbit was reported. I'm going to try to find her bunny just as much as I try to find somebody who went out and stole thousands of dollars. Now, I want to note, this was on the front page of the Savannah Morning News, the very same week as riots in Egypt were ongoing, because a dictatorship was being overthrown and they were moving toward democracy for the first time in their nation's history. Now, I'm not using this example to pick on the Savannah Morning News. It's typically very well done. I'm not picking on the Poor Garden Club or the police department. These are wonderful organizations that serve the community well and we're better for them. No complaints at all for any of these. But here is my point. How do we decide what is most important. Is a stolen stuffed bunny worthy of the front page of a major newspaper while a major world nation is being completely turned upside down that gets a blip on page six? I suspect that we have a very difficult time discerning what is and what is not important in our day-to-day lives. I think about all of the information we're constantly bombarded with in media and advertising, much more so than any other generation. The average home has multiple televisions throughout it. The average TV is on for eight hours a day. The average American spends three hours on the Internet every single day. And you include in that magazines, newspapers, tabloids, junk mail, billboards, emails, newspapers, newsletters, Facebook ads. We have a constant influx of information. 
It becomes very difficult for us to sort through all of this, to work through the sea of information and determine what is most important. Consider some of the headlines from this last week. The Queen meets the parents. Ah, we've heard so much of the royal wedding. Lots of press. The Olsen twins' bizarre outfits. Mel Gibson may be quitting his acting career. No break at the gas pumps this spring. And the needs of NFL draft teams. So of all the information you'll receive in your lifetime, how do we respond when asked, what is the most important thing that we know? What is the most important thing that must be known? Is it the latest goings-on in Hollywood relationships or sports scores or royal wedding dresses or stolen stuffed bunnies? Or perhaps it's political unrest and raising gas prices and economic downturn and unemployment rates. What is the most important thing that must be known? The Apostle Paul answers that for us in 1 Corinthians 15. And what he writes about is that what he's telling the Corinthians about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus is of first importance. It is the most important thing in all human history. So we're going to look at this passage verse by verse. We begin with verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. So, brothers, he's talking brothers and sisters to believers in Corinth. I want to remind you of the good news that I preached to you and that you received. Well, what's the good news? He gets into it in verse 3. He's saying to them, I preached the gospel, you received it, past tense, you are standing in it, present tense. And, verse 2, he goes on, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You are being saved, presently and in the future. So Paul wants the Corinthians to know what they should already know since they believe the gospel that he preached to them. By the gospel, you are saved, is what he tells them. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God? Saved from the penalty of our sin and from the bondage of sin? Saved from death? Saved from eternal separation from God? So if you take all he's saying here together, he's saying, I preached the gospel, and you said you received it, you believed it. Now you claim to be standing in it, and if so, you are saved and will be saved on the last day, if by holding fast and persevering to the end to prove to be a genuine believer in Christ. So Paul is referencing his own preaching, followed by the positive affirmation that the Corinthians responded positively. He then warns them to not deviate from that gospel, lest all that was received, all that they supposedly believed, was in vain. Now this is an incredibly relevant message for us in our day and in our culture. How does all of this work in light of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? 
If he's saying that perhaps you received it and then you believed in vain and you didn't continue on in the faith, how do we understand that to be with our doctrine that we understand perseverance of the saints? Or in good southern vernacular, once saved, always saved, right? We've all heard that. Well, let's consider Mark chapter 4, the sower. Remember, the sower, uh, Jesus telling a parable, the sower went out to sow some seeds. He sowed his seeds and some fell on the path, some fell on rocky soil, some fell in thorns, and some fell in good soil. So, what does he say of those? The seed that fell on the path. The seed, being the Word of God, fell into the soil. The hearts of men, some fell on the path. He says, Satan came and took the Word away as quickly as it was placed there. He says, other seed, the Word fell on the rock. It sprung up quickly, but it had no roots. And as soon as any of the elements came, it withered up and it died. Others of the seeds fell amongst the thorns, and they sprung up, and they were healthy, but the thorns eventually choked them out. He says, the cares of the world choked them out. And then lastly, some of the seed fell on good soil, planted roots, sprung up healthily, and bared much fruit. Now of the four of these, the path, the rock, the thorns, and the good soil, Three of them think they're saved. Only one of them is. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so not everyone who says they are, and not everyone who thinks they are a Christian, is in fact a Christian. You cannot simultaneously claim to have received the gospel of Christ, yet be a worker of lawlessness. What is lawlessness? 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, sin is lawlessness. So does this apply in our context? Absolutely. 76% of Americans claim to be Christians. Yet we spend billions of dollars each year on tabloids to find out who's dating who and who's wearing what in Hollywood. Tell me we have roots and we're not being choked out by the world. And yet in the end, many will say, Lord, Lord, I went to church a few times a year. I fought for prayer in public schools. I clicked the like button on Jesus' Facebook fan page. And so, we have a sober reminder from Paul that many will believe in vain. Is he saying they will lose their salvation? No, that's not possible. He's saying they never had it in the first place. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19 says, They went out from us because they were never of us. 
So Paul identifies, indeed, we have a problem. That problem is simply sin. And we're all sinners. We all have in word and deed and thoughts done what we were not to do and not done what we were to do. We have sins of omission, not doing what's right, and sins of commission, doing what is wrong. We are all sinners, and the result of our sin is death, and we all die. And that's the bad news. We're all sinners. We all die. Now in verse 3, Paul picks back up with the good news. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Of first importance. Of all that can be known, this is the one thing that absolutely, assuredly must be known. Of all the facts coming in day by day, this is of first and greatest importance to every man everywhere. And notice he says, I also received. Paul's not making this up. He's only delivering what he received by eyewitnesses and a personal encounter with Jesus himself. And we'll see that shortly. So what is of greatest importance? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So, two things He says here. First, that Jesus died and was buried. And second, that Jesus rose from the dead. So let's look at each of those. First, Jesus died and was buried. Paul writes, Christ died for our sins, and he did so in accordance with the Scriptures. So Jesus living, Jesus being crucified, these things are historical facts. And no serious historian or scholar has sought to deny these facts. Notice I said serious. Jesus was a man and Jesus was crucified. Now there's more recent attempts to deny that. Islam denies that Jesus died, but the historical record is absolutely overwhelming even aside from the Scriptures. Jesus was a man. Jesus lived. Jesus died. He was crucified. He underwent flogging. He underwent a brutal beating, leaving Him near death. A flogging that many men died from, just from the excruciating beating that he received. Flesh was removed from his body. He was in shock. He was bleeding profusely. He was hungry. He was dehydrated. He had a sleepless night before his intense flogging. He was near death. And then the professional executors forced Jesus to carry his own cross to his place of crucifixion. And they literally nailed him to a Roman crossbar through his hands and his feet. This was a painful, publicly humiliating way to die. And Jesus died and breathed his last. And the executioner who was there to ensure his death declared him to be dead. And to guarantee it, a spear was sent through his side, under his ribcage, up into his heart, piercing his heart, causing water and blood to flow from his side, thereby guaranteeing beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus most certainly was dead. Jesus died. Why? 
Lots of good people die. Lots of people die untimely and unpleasant deaths. Why did Jesus die? That's what's so significant to us. Paul says that Christ died for our sins. What does that mean? Romans 6.23, the penalty for sin is death. God is a holy, righteous, and good God. And any offense against God results in this penalty of death. And we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory and God having made clear through the law what He expects of all mankind, myself included, shows that in our failure to uphold that which He has called us to, We are sinners, and we are absolutely guilty as charged. And every man everywhere, as we spoke on Thursday night, knows that, even apart from the Bible. This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1. And subsequently, the penalty of sin must be paid, and the consequence of death must be faced. And out of love, and out of grace, and out of mercy, God became a human being. He lived without sin. He died as a substitute for our sin. He paid our penalty of death. And so now, there are two ways to approach the judgment day. One... As one who is depending on my own good deeds, on my own righteousness, on my own way of seeking to live up to what God demands. And I'll give you a hint. It's not a good plan. The scriptures make very clear that your attempts at self-righteousness are to God as filthy rags. Secondly, we can approach the judgment as one whom Christ has died for and to whom we point to and say, He is my payment. He has paid my price. I am a sinner, but He is a perfect sacrifice, and I am His and He is mine. I am bought with the precious blood of Christ, as we just sang. Praise God. Jesus Christ died. It's a historical fact for a theological meaning to pay the penalty for our sins as our substitute in love, in our place. And so what that means is that when we consider the cross, we should consider the fact that we should suffer. I should suffer. I should die. I should undergo the same sort of horror that Jesus did because of the person that I am and the life that I have lived making very little of God and of His glory. But I will not die that kind of death. And I will not face that kind of eternal judgment and separation from God because of the love of Jesus. And so the first thing that Paul says is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And He was buried We know that Jesus' body was taken down from the cross. It was prepared for burial. And that day, preparation of a body was not unlike that of mummification, where they would wrap the body in linens and spices. And once the body was prepared, it was then laid into a tomb. Remember, Jesus had no tomb. 
So a rich follower of Christ named Joseph of Arimathea gifted to the dead body of Jesus his own personal tomb. And this was to fulfill what was written in Isaiah chapter 53, that Jesus would be buried with the rich in his death, and his body was laid into the tomb. A large stone rolled over the entrance to the tomb to guarantee that no one would tamper with the body. The seal of the government was placed over the tomb to ensure that no one would tamper with the body of Jesus. And then to further guarantee that the body would not be tampered with, a guard was posted to make sure that the body was not stolen and in no way could anyone come and steal away the body of Jesus. So Jesus died. Jesus was buried in a tomb that was heavily guarded and sealed. And all of this was foretold in the Old Testament And time and time and time again, we see it in the Bible and most notably in the book of Isaiah. Christ's death and burial were in accordance with the Scriptures. A second thing Paul says there in verse 3 is that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures. Jesus Christ, unlike anyone who has ever lived, unlike any religious teacher who has ever taught, unlike any miracle worker who has ever served, Jesus Christ conquered death. And this makes Him distinct and superior to everyone who has ever lived and everyone who ever will live. Jesus Christ rose and the claim in itself is altogether unique. This claim by itself is altogether worthy of our investigation because all of Christianity hinges on this central, significant issue of the resurrection of Jesus. And there are many differences in the Christian church on matters of theology. But on this matter, all Christians agree or else they're not Christians. Paul's simple summation is that Jesus died Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose. And to believe this in a saving way, by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, is what it is to be a Christian. One writer explains that the first cent- in the first century, there were many other messianic movements whose would-be messiahs were executed. However... In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leaders had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options. One, give up the revolution, or two, find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option. Unless, of course, he was. So rest assured that first century people were just as perplexed by the reality of the resurrection as people are today. They found it just as inconceivable as many do today. And the only way that anyone embraced the resurrection then was by allowing the evidence to challenge and change their worldview. Their view of what is possible They had just as much trouble with the claim of the resurrection of Jesus as you might. And yet the overwhelming evidence, both eyewitness accounts and the changed lives of Christ's followers, was absolutely overwhelming. 
You see, without the resurrection, Christ's death was useless. It was to no avail. It was powerless. And the cross was simply a massive injustice that we mourn over because an innocent man was put to death. Death without resurrection is pointless, and therefore Jesus is no more God than anyone else who has ever died. And we'll look at that next week. But, having been resurrected from the dead, having been raised up, what are we just seeing? Death is crushed to death. Death is conquered. And the benefit is now, life is mine to live. Because I have been raised with Christ. Sam Storms, a pastor in Oklahoma, he wrote, I can honestly say that I've staked my entire life on an empty tomb. Everything I am, everything I own, everything I've done or hope to do hangs suspended on whether or not Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. Putting my trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is only as good as the tomb is empty. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, my life is a sham. I've invested everything in, staked everything on, and trusted everything to the historical fact of the empty tomb of Jesus. If his body and bones are still buried somewhere in Palestine or have long since disintegrated under the forces of time and the laws of physics, nothing has meaning for me nor do I have meaning for anything or anyone else. So in considering the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we are facing the most important question that any human being will ever answer in his or her lifetime. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Everything hinges on our response to that one single question. Another quote, George Eldon Ladd, the historical evidences which prove the resurrection are obvious for all to see. The reason that all men do not see them is the sinful blindness of the human heart. Only the man of faith can see the facts of history. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark without any historical evidences. Neither with Neither will historical evidences demand faith, for the man of unbelief will always come up with a different historical explanation. However, faith is supported and reinforced by historical evidences. So what historical evidences do we have? Paul gives that answer, and he points to the most convincing and undeniable evidence of them all. Eyewitnesses. Jesus died. Jesus was buried, Jesus rose from the dead, and now Paul adds, Jesus appeared. Look at verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul is saying, people saw Jesus and people heard Jesus after they saw him murdered on a cross and buried in a sealed tomb. 
So Christ appeared to central authority figures in the church, Peter, the twelve, James, and all the apostles. He appeared to large numbers of people. We see he appeared to 500 brothers at one time. And thirdly, he appeared to Paul himself. Now, interesting to note, the difference between Christianity, one of the differences between Christianity and every other religion in the world, those who were eyewitness to what Jesus did and what happened in his resurrection are the ones who went and proclaimed in mass numbers what they have experienced, what they have seen, and what Jesus has done. All others either come from one person who has a dream or a vision or something else that cannot be verified by anyone else. And that one person goes and tells everyone about it. And so Paul draws this massive body of evidence that people saw him. This was a known public fact This was public news and public discussion. He says, first of all, that Jesus appeared following his death and resurrection to his friends. And that includes Peter, who was trained by Jesus personally for three years. Now remember, Peter was a bit of a coward. He denied Jesus three times. When he saw Jesus was going to his execution, he lacked courage until he saw Jesus raised from death. Jesus spoke to him, he reinstated him as a leader for his ministry, and Peter was altogether transformed into a bold, courageous man by the resurrection of Christ. He went on to preach the resurrection of Jesus and to suffer for preaching the resurrection of Jesus. He wrote two books of the Bible, one of which we read from already this morning, bearing his name, and ultimately when he went to be crucified, he did not recant. And in fact, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified as my Savior. And so they hung him upside down. And so some will simply say, well, these men were were liars. Really? So by worldly standards, we can look at these men and say, they serve the poor and the needy and the widows and the orphans and the outcasts. So they're not men who are greedy, they're not seeking power, they're not seeking fame, they're not seeking fortune. Now add to this the fact that these are men who suffered, who were on the run, who were hated and despised and were murdered in poverty and in shame. For what reason? For the truth. They weren't killed because they committed a crime or got in a fight. They died because what they believed and because they were making that known. Because they themselves have said, we were eyewitness to this. Now Jesus also appeared to his other disciples, including Thomas, who perhaps, like some of you, was a great doubter. And he wondered if Jesus had indeed risen from dead. And he said, I won't believe it myself unless I see with my own eyes and I touch it with my own hands. I need to have the evidence. We hear it all the time today. So what does Jesus do? He appears to Thomas. Thomas investigated the body of his friend. He saw his crucifixion scars, and Thomas said, I am absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ did die. I was there. 
He was buried. I saw it. And he fell down as we all should. And Thomas declared, my Lord and my God. And Thomas worshipped Jesus Christ as God. So Jesus appeared to his friends. He appeared to strangers. And Paul tells us Jesus appeared to crowds numbering 500 people at a time. So Jesus was not in hiding. He was alive. He was walking around. He was visibly uh, public. Everyone had an opportunity to verify that he had indeed risen from the dead. And so Paul is telling his readers, if you don't believe me, then go ask other eyewitnesses. Because this was not penned at a point in history. He tells us when hundreds of years following the resurrection of Jesus, there were no eyewitnesses. This was penned when many of the eyewitnesses were still alive and could verify this fact. Jesus appeared to friends and strangers and family and up to 500 at a time. And he says, you don't have to take my word for it. Go and ask them. And so some might say, well, these are his friends. Maybe his acquaintances and his family. Maybe they were all predisposed to eagerly yearn for the coming of Jesus from the death. Maybe they worked together out of their heart's longing because what they really wanted was for Jesus to rise. And maybe they made this up and hundreds of thousands of people were in on the lie and maybe they all suffered for no apparent reason because of it. Okay. Ridiculous as that is, let's just say that it's true. So Paul makes his final point that finalizes the case of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says... I saw him too. Now, remember, Paul was not an acquaintance. Paul was not a friend of Jesus. Paul was not a family member of Jesus. He was an enemy of Jesus. He hated Jesus with the kind of deep hatred that few have ever had for Jesus or anyone else. He despised Jesus and he despised Christians. One of our first introductions to Paul as Saul in the book of Acts is where he is participating in the public execution and unjust murder of Stephen because Stephen worshipped the resurrected Jesus. And Paul's whole mission was to murder people who worship Jesus. Until what happened? Until he saw the resurrected Jesus. And upon seeing Jesus restored to life, Paul was struck with the irrefutable fact that Jesus Christ was in fact God, who had taken away sin and conquered death and deserves our worship alone. And so we see Paul is radically transformed. He went from a murderer of Christians to an apostle of Christ. He went from someone who put Christians to death to preach the hope of their resurrection. He went from a man who devoted his life to destroying Christianity to a man who gave his life in the service of Christianity. He is a man who was shipwrecked and homeless and beaten and left for dead and impoverished and on the run and in prison for one reason. He would not stop talking about the resurrection of this Jesus whom he once hated. And Paul is essentially saying this, I wouldn't lie. I would have... I would not have had such a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of life if this indeed were not factual, if this indeed were not true. 
And the question is, why would a man like Paul tell a lie that is absolutely opposed to everything that he was initially committed to? Why would he tell a lie that shame and disgrace and death would come and it would profit him no power and no fame and no money and no glory? He was highly respected. He was affluent. And he gave it all up. And he had an absolute transformation in his heart and in his mind regarding the person and work of Jesus. The answer is because it's true. And the eyewitnesses were alive to verify that fact in that day. And then Paul concludes, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So what Paul is saying is this. Christians are not good people. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you understand and can agree with me. I'm not impressed with Christians. I think they're all sinners, myself included. And we can all say amen to that. And you may say, well, Christians are no better than I am. And amen, again, I agree with you there as well. Well, you see, God does not choose us because we are good people. God does not choose us because we are lovely people. God does not choose us because we are deserving people. He does so in spite of who we are, in spite of what we've done. And so you might ask, well, how does that work? How do unbelieving people get love? How do guilty people get forgiveness? How do rebellious people get affection? How do condemned people get mercy? And Paul says, grace. Grace is at the center of all that we believe. We are a people of grace. We say we are all sinners We don't merit, deserve, or earn God's love and favor, and none of us can claim a right for God to be kind to us, to forgive us, to embrace us, to endure with us, to deliver us into His eternal presence. None of us has that right. But by grace, the offer is given freely. This is God's love in action. This is God's mercy in action. This is God's kindness at work. So Paul simply says, I'm saved by grace. That's all. And all who are saved from death and hell and sin and judgment are saved by grace through Jesus Christ alone. And Paul says that not only does God's grace save us from our old ways of life, it empowers us for a new way of life. Paul says, I've worked very hard. I've accomplished a few things, but don't pat me on the back. It was only by God's grace that I got something done. It is only by God's grace that I had a transformation in my life, that God could use me for His purposes, that good could come from this evil heart. It is only by His grace. It's the sum total of all that we're about. 
That God saves us by grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That God empowers us to live a new life forever together with Him by grace. So Paul points directly to the events of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And he's not concerned with just any gospel, but with, in his words, the only gospel that saves. Paul reminds the Corinthians that this is the gospel that I preach to you. With complete clarity, Paul writes with urgency about the truths that are of first importance. All truth that God reveals is essential. It's precious and life-changing. But certain truths are of greatest importance. And this is the language that Paul uses in this passage. And so what is it, as we summarize to close? Of first importance, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The cross and the empty tomb stand at the center of Christian faith. And without these, and without the grace of God, there is no good news. There is no salvation. And so as Paul well understood, Christianity stands or falls with an empty tomb. If Christ is not raised, we are to be pitied, for our faith is in vain. And we're going to look at that next week. So those who preach a resurrectionless Christianity have substituted the truth of the gospel for a complete and total lie. But, Paul asserted, Christ is risen from the dead. And so our faith is not in vain, but it is in the risen Lord. He willingly faced death on a cross. He defeated death in the grave. And the resurrection is the ultimate sign of God's vindication of His Son and of His people. As John Brodus preached over a century ago, it was the signed manual of the deity. It was the seal of the sovereign of the universe affixed to his claim. It declared him to be all that he had ever professed to be. And so it establishes the truth of all his teaching and the truth of the whole Christian society. The great fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is the central fact of the evidence of Christianity. So Paul reminds the, Christian, uh, the Corinthians, and now he instructs us, that the gospel is at the center of our faith. And the cross and the empty tomb are at the center of the gospel. So we preach, and so you believed. Paul encourages us. So as the church gathers all around the world today to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, as we do every single Lord's Day, we should look backwards in thankfulness at the empty tomb and forward to the fulfillment of Christ's promise. A resurrection day is not merely a celebration. It is also a preparation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the promise of our resurrection from the dead and of Christ's total victory over sin and death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the very center of our gospel and the empty tomb is full of power. Now all of us may not agree what's important from day to day in our lives. And we may not always agree with the Savannah Morning News about what's most important and should be on the front page. 
But of this we can be sure. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is of first importance. And that changes everything. Let's pray together. Father, we are great debtors to your grace. We're so grateful. We don't come together to talk about philosophy. We don't come together to discuss hypotheses. We don't come together to talk about a dream or a vision someone had. But we come together to worship the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Who died on behalf of His people. Who was buried and who rose again. And who now sits at the right hand of the Father. Ruling and reigning forever and ever. And by Your grace... The great benefit of Christ's death and resurrection is applied to your people, and we rejoice. We rejoice that we are not left to our own good deeds or our own attempts at righteousness, but rather that Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf, and that we, by your grace, can point to him as believers in Christ if our lives have been radically transformed by the grace of Christ and we are in him and we are his and he is ours, that Christ is our only hope. We thank you, Lord, that you made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God and that we have the great hope that Jesus will once again return and that we will be raised from the dead. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this celebration. Thank you for our preparation. Give us a great desire for Christ. I pray, God, for those who are here today who may be hearing the gospel for the first time, who maybe have heard the, first, the, the gospel for the first time in a while. I pray, God, that you use your word and Holy Spirit that you would do a great work to irresistibly draw them onto yourself for your glory. God, thank you. Thank you for worship. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus our Savior and Lord. In His name we pray. Amen.